Judges chapter 14, verses 1 through 20, for the reading of Scripture. Judges chapter 14, verses 1 through 20, this is God's word. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young man used to do. As soon as the, the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him, and Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Eshkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Amen. What do you believe about yourself, about other people, about the world, and about God. 
Not what you say in a formal discussion or in a Bible study or in an interview or in one of those personality testing questions. Talking about what you really, really believe deep inside. Your Christian life will be a constant tug of war with God if your belief does not agree with God and His will at the fundamental level. This will cause you much frustration and pain because this is God's world after all, and He governs it according to His good and sovereign will. And God will be much grieved by your obstinance. One way to discover the answer is by examining how you respond to what happens to you. And let me give you an example, and I think this will clear up. Many of you know Naaman, an Aramean general who suffered from leprosy, which nobody could cure. He heard from his Jewish slave girl that the prophet Elisha in Israel would have no problem healing him. So with a ray of hope, he comes to Israel. To make a long story short, he comes to the house of Elisha with his impressive entourage. But Elisha did not even greet him. He just sent his servant to talk to him and, and told him, Go wash yourself seven times and you will be clean in the river Jordan. This greatly upset Naaman. Why? A pastor friend of mine pointed out that Naaman thought of himself as a great general who happened to be leprous, and he thought that that was so unfair. He had all the right to be cured of his disease. He was a great general. It's not fair that he should have this kind of disease. But what did Elisha think of him? Elisha th thought of Naaman as a leper who happened to be a general. Do you see the difference? How you view yourself matters a lot. And there are two different kinds of ways to think of yourself as Naaman did, that you deserve all the things in the world and it's unfair that you don't get everything you want. Or, as Elisha thought, that we are fundamentalist sinners who happen to have all these things only by the grace of God. Keep this difference in mind. It will be important for us as we address a difficult moral and theological question that arises in today's passage, which is Samson killing the 30 Philistine men in Eshkelon and the Holy Spirit's undeniable involvement in this act. So we will talk about what the issue is and a couple of options for dealing with it. And we will also talk about how this applies to us as we consider Jesus' work of salvation for us. What Samson does after losing his bet is very troubling. 
even though we can understand why Samson was so angry. His 30 Philistine companions did not play fair. It was wrong of them to threaten Samson's wife to get the answer to the riddle. These men proved, to, proved themselves to be a bunch of thugs. Integrity was sorely lacking in that bunch. But was Samson's response good and just? He goes down to Ashkelon, and remember, this bed and wedding feast took place in Timnah, but he goes down to Ashkelon, which was about 20 miles away, and kills 30 Philistines to get what he promised to his 30 wedding companions. These Ashkelon, these Ashkelonites, here they were, minding their own business, totally unrelated to what happened in Timnah. And all of a sudden, Samson descend, descended on them and killed them and takes away their cloaks. That is not okay, is it? Someone striking us with injustice and wrong does not give us the right to respond in kind by doing something wicked and evil ourselves. God calls each of us to do the right thing regardless of what other people do around us or to us. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Jesus said. But what is really, really troubling about this passage is the undeniable involvement of the Holy Spirit in Samson's problematic act. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Eshkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil. What does it sound like? It sounds like the Holy Spirit empowered and directed Samson to go down to Eshkelon and strike down the 30 men. If that is true, it raises serious theological problems, doesn't it? Did the Holy Spirit make Samson do this heinous deed? We're going to consider two ways of answering this question. The first is to remember correlation does not imply causation. My kids use this phrase a lot because they use it a lot in their debate tournaments. Two elements may be closely related to each other without one being the cause of the other. When a bomb goes off and the building next to it is destroyed, there's clearly a causal relationship between the two. But let's say that right after the bomb went off, somebody called you on the phone. Can we say that the bomb caused someone to call you and therefore every time a bomb goes off, somebody will call you? Of course not. We can view what is happening in today's passage as an instance of correlation, not of causation. Eric Pritcher says, Samson's basic problem is that he never learned to control his own emotions. Time and again, they get him into trouble, first in romance, then in revenge. Samson is the perfect picture of a believer out of control. 
And here's the irony. He was empowered by the Spirit, but he was never controlled by the Spirit. That can happen to any of us. When it does, we are just like Samson, capable of great accomplishments and incredibly stupid mistakes at the same time. What do you think? This is an interesting suggestion, and the distinction he makes may be helpful here. But some may still ask why the Holy Spirit rushed upon Samson at that precise moment if he didn't cause Samson to kill the 30 Ashkelonites. To answer that question, consider when the killing happened. The Holy Spirit rushed upon Samson right after he said to, his, uh, to the 30 thugs, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. We can see how Samson might have been justified in killing them for threatening and using his wife. At least that would have been more acceptable than killing the innocent Ashkelonites. And that might have been what the Holy Spirit wanted Samson to do. But we have to consider the possibility that Spirit caused Samson to kill the 30 that he did. That seems to be a more natural reading. But we don't want to even consider this possibility because Samson's action seems like a random act of violence. We feel bad for the 30 poor Philistines at Ashkelon who are the unfortunate victims of that atrocity. What Samson did seems unconscionable. If so, how could the Holy Spirit direct Samson to do such a thing and empower him to do so? That would be a moral, theological outrage. But before we get outraged by this idea, think about this. To reach that conclusion, we have to assume certain things and read those assumptions into today's story. That the 30 men who were killed were totally innocent and did not deserve to die at all. But this passage is not giving us the full story. We don't know very much about the 30 Philistines who were killed and the circumstances in which they were killed. We don't know what kind of people they were, but there are certain things we do know. They were sinners and they were Philistines. We'll see why these factors are important here. Then we will try to see why these 30 were killed, even though there were many other Philistines in Ashkelon even who fitted the bill as well. Here I ask you to call to mind what I shared in the introduction, the difference between what Elijah thought of Naaman and what Naaman thought of himself. What Elijah thought of Naaman is where we should begin. We are all sinners in the sight of God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we happen to be somebody or do something special, it is by the grace of God, by His common grace. What happened to 
the 30 Eshkelonites demonstrate what sinners really deserve from an absolutely holy God. No one described this better than Jonathan Edwards in his sermon titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This sermon was in my English literature uh, book when I was growing up in high school. And if you have not read it, I think you should all read it sometime. In his efforts to call sinners to repentance, Edwards shows the horrific plight of sinners before a holy God. And here are some of the things that he says. Sinners are always exposed to destruction as one that stands or walks in slippery places is always exposed to fall. And he gets this from Deuteronomy 30 to 25. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamities at hand and their doom comes swiftly. So what Deuteronomy 32 says is, it's, 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 you have to picture a somebody who is walking on a very perilous slope. A hiking place may be. And that's what Edwards is saying, is that it pictures the perilous condition of sinners before the presence of God. And that is why sinners are always exposed to destruction. One misstep, he could fall down into the deep valley of destruction. And they're always exposed to sudden, unexpected destruction. And they are liable to fall of themselves without being thrown down by the hand of another person. The weight of their many sins is enough to bring them down. But the reason they are not fallen already and don't fall now is only that God's appointed time has not yet come. For it is said in Deuteronomy 32 that when that appointed time comes, their foot shall slide. There's no lack of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands can be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hands. God is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but God can most easily do it. And they deserve to be cast into hell. Divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God's using his power at any moment to destroy them. Yea, on the contrary, justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. And they are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. They are now the objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. It is not because God is unmindful of their wickedness and doesn't resent it that he doesn't let loose his hand and cut them off. The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation doesn't slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit has opened her mouth under them. The devil stands ready to fall upon them and seize them as his own at what moment God shall permit him. And there are in the souls of the wicked men those hellish principles reigning that would presently kindle and flame out into hellfire if it were not 
for God's restraints. It is no security to wicked men for one moment that there are no visible means of death at hand. Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering, and there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they won't bear their weight, and these places are not seen. The arrows of death fly unseen at noonday. God has so many unsearchable ways of taking wicked men out of the world and sending them to hell that no miracle is necessary. The ordinary course of his providence is sufficient to destroy any wicked man at any moment. Natural man's prudence and care to preserve their own lives or the care of others to preserve them don't secure them a moment. There is this clear evidence that man's own wisdom is no security to them from death. All wicked men's efforts and contrivance they use to escape hell while they continue to reject Christ and so remain wicked men don't secure them from hell one moment. That is the true condition of all sinners before a holy God. Don't these words humble us as they show the perilous and helpless condition sinners are in before a holy and just God? Don't they make us pity the unrepentant sinners of the world rather than envy them for what they seem to have and enjoy in this life? And don't they multiply our appreciation for the grace of salvation that God has extended to us in Jesus Christ? But this doesn't answer all the questions, does it? Why were those 30 Philistines killed rather than the 30 thugs at Timnah? Why them and not others in Eshkelon? There are two reasons to consider in combination, one redemptive historical and the other personal. The redemptive historical reason is the harem warfare God declared against the Canaanites, which included the Philistines. As we said, that the harem warfare was directed only against the Canaanites who lived within the boundaries of the promised land that God gave to the people of Israel. This was particularly in effect at the time of Israel's invasion to Canaan. This was supposed to be a picture of the final judgment. But Israel's lack of faith and unwillingness to carry it out resulted in certain Canaanite nations remaining in the land of which Philistia was one. After the initial stage of conquest, God did not renew the call for harem warfare against the remaining Canaanites. And this may be because the harem warfare was still in effect against the Canaanites. The Philistines were doomed to destruction for their sin many, many generations of sin, and they could meet their doom at any moment. And we can see that that's what happened to the 30 Philistines in Ashkelon. But why those? Didn't all the Canaanites deserve this? There's another reason, which is related to the first. God told Abraham that the reason he and his descendants had to wait 400 years before they could take the promised land was because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Paul said that the Jews who were 
hindering him and other apostles and other Christians to preach the gospel to, uh, from preaching the gospel to the Gentiles was filling up the measure of their sin. These passages suggest that each person and each nation has a certain measure of sins assigned by God. When they fill up the full measure of their sins, God's judgment comes. For now, the judgments are temporary. But when the whole world fills up the measure of its sins, the final judgment will come. It may be that the 30 Philistines at Eshkelon were worse than the 30 thugs in Timnah, but it doesn't have to be. Even from our observation, it is obvious that each person has a different measure of sin. Some meet their demise early, while others who seem more wicked live longer and richer, enjoying many good things that this life has to offer. The 30 thugs at Timnah might have been much worse than the 30 in Eshkelon. But the 30 in Eshkelon died. Isn't that so unfair? But try to look at this from God's perspective, from the perspective of eternity. We don't know how, but God's justice ensures that the more wicked people will be punished more. And this is true of Christians too. Christians will not receive the same measure of glory and reward in heaven. And the same will be in hell. Those who are allowed to remain in this world longer as they continue to do more wicked things will be punished far more severely in hell for all eternity than those who meet their demise early on. I hope we see how foolish it is to think that the former the people who live longer, enjoying more, but who suffer more in hell, had a better deal because at least they got to experience more pleasure in this life. Would they think in hell that their temporary pleasures were worth the torment they must suffer forever in hell? This is a difficult question, and I'm not so sure whether I have answered all of them correctly, but I think it does give us at least a proper perspective, a biblical perspective of dealing with this very difficult, difficult incident and the Holy Spirit's involvement in it. So then, what should shock us is not the seemingly untimely death of the 30 men at the hands of Samson, at the hands of God. After all, they were sinners and Philistines at that time, and they were under the sentence of eternal damnation. What should shock us more than anything else is the death of Jesus Christ at the hands of sinners. What should shock us even more is that this was according to God's eternal plan. From one perspective, this was the greatest injustice ever in the history of man, the death of Jesus Christ. The 30 men deserve to die as sinners and Philistines. We all deserve to die the most cruel death and more for our sins. 
the only person who did not deserve to die was Jesus Christ, the righteous one without sin. Yet he was crucified like the worst of criminals, falsely accused by the Jewish religious leaders at that time, condemned to death for political expediency by Pontius Pilate, betrayed and abandoned by his disciples, mocked by the very crowd that he ministered to, healing them and and casting demons out of them, flogged and mocked and crucified by the Roman soldiers, and in the end, forsaken by his heavenly Father, who decreed the very thing. But in the midst of all this chaos and injustice, by the infinite wisdom of God, the justice of God was being fulfilled. The full punishment of our sin was finally being paid by the suffering, pain, and death of Jesus Christ. You see, this had never happened in the history of mankind, this execution of God's perfect justice. No one had ever experienced the full punishment of his sin. Not the 30 men at Eshkelon, not those who perished in the flood at Noah's time. But Jesus endured the full punishment for all the sins of his people. In God's marvelous wisdom, the execution of divine justice laid down the foundation for his divine grace for sinners who put their trust in Jesus Christ, their Savior. You see, because Jesus willingly threw himself into the hands of an angry God in our place, we have been placed in the hands of a most marvelous and gracious God who is now our loving Heavenly Father. Oh, how wonderful it is to be in the hands, in the almighty hands of a loving, gracious Father. You know what that means? It means you are always exposed to blessing as one who stands under the warmth of the spring sun for love and grace are God's constant disposition towards you who is in Christ Jesus. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is your confession. That is your song. We are always exposed to sudden, unexpected blessings of God, grace upon grace. And many of us can testify that God has blessed us far beyond what we deserve unexpectedly in so many ways. Even though we are liable to fall of ourselves, we need not fear because the almighty hand of God upholds us. If we are at the moment not as happy as we shall be in heaven, it is not because God's power is lacking or his love is wanting. 
It is because sin, sin still remains in us, and God's love includes His fatherly discipline to wean us from sin more and more because sin is the most destructive force in the world. Through our union with Christ, we are entitled to all the blessings of God. Divine justice no longer stands in the way. On the contrary, divine justice calls aloud for God's abundant blessings on us because Jesus earned them for us through his perfect obedience. Can you believe that? Instead of justice condemning you for eternal damnation, justice calls out for God's blessings upon you. Because Jesus earned them, all of them, by his perfect obedience. The devil cannot accuse us anymore. The devil cannot take possession of us any longer. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing is strong enough to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Even though we face suffering and pain in this world, we are not discouraged. We do not despair because God is with us and He will never leave us or abandon us. The love with which God loves the glorified saints in heaven is the very love with which He loves you now. Even though you live in this flawed condition, even though you are full of failures and mistakes and flaws and brokenness, He loves you with the very love with which He loves the glorified saints who are sinless, who are full of beauty and glory. God's heart burns with love toward us and He has the Glorious of heaven, glorious heaven already for us. The only reason that God does not bring us into heaven right now at this moment is because each of us has a mission to fulfill. The reason for which God brought us into the world and into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Though we may have a hard time saying goodbye to this world and to all of our loved ones, the moment we step into heaven, all the charming things of this world will be lost in the surpassing joy of being with our Savior and Lord in that glorious heaven. Oh, what a change we have experienced because of Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is to be transferred from the hands of an angry God into the hands of a loving, merciful God. Let us cling to Him. And let us honor Him with everything He has blessed us with as long as He gives us breath here in this world. And let us not doubt God. He is good. Though we do not see it all the time, you will see it clearly. If not in this world, then soon. 
for sure in heaven. There we will praise God forever. God, you are good. You have done all things well. You are justified to do all that you do, both with sinners and with the redeemed of the Lord. Let us pray together. O Lord our God, we give you thanks and praise. We have dealt with a difficult, difficult issue. But maybe if it's difficult, it's because we are proud. We do not take into consideration what sinners really deserve in the hands of an angry and righteous God. God who is angry because he's righteous, he's holy, he's pure. And because we are guilty sinners who have sinned not only against the one who gave us life and all the blessings, but who have served that which is despicable, false. So Lord, we pray that we will humble ourselves and trust that you are just and you will execute your full justice. But you are also good as you have shown to us in your son, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that those who do not know you will recognize the perilous condition in which they walk, that they will not deceive themselves thinking that they are safe, Help them to run to you, even for fear of condemnation. But when they come to you, show them how it is only right and how beautiful and good it is for them to trust in their maker and their redeemer. And help those of us who have professed our faith in Jesus Christ rejoice and grow deeper and deeper in our understanding of how richly blessed we are and help us, Lord, to boast of your grace and your mercy and your name. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.